Well, good morning, Eastgate. Look at all these happy faces here. That's awesome. Um, at any given time throughout the day of every day of your life living in this present world that we're in, you are blasted with a fire hydrant equivalent volume of voices speaking to you, speaking to you, yelling at you, instructing you, (laughs) corralling you, all of these voices competing to tell us what our problem is and how their solution is going to work for us. (laughs) We're the voices that tell us that we need to be more efficient with our time and our money or we need to be careful about our carb or gluten intake or we need to change our parenting strategy or we need the newest drug, or we need the oldest homeopathic remedies, or we need to elect somebody from a different party, or we need a positive outlook, or we need to fight for our cultural values, we need to take control of our lives. But most of all, we need to buy whatever it is that's being sold for one low, low price, which will actually solve all of those things. And listen, hey, maybe maybe some of the things that we're hearing, maybe some of the The claims made by these voices are true. But none of it, none of it gets to the core of what is dissipating our souls on an individual or a cultural or a global level. According to John, the author of a gospel, there is one voice that explains our deepest needs and the solution. And every other voice needs to be screened in deference to that one voice. Last week, we began a new series in the Gospel of John. And if you've got a way of following along, if you'll head over to John chapter 1, please. We're going to continue our study today. John's Gospel is unique from the other Gospel accounts It tells stories that the other Gospels don't tell. It leaves other stories out that the other Gospels have. It is centered on Jesus revealing who God is and how we can find life in him. In fact, very end of John's Gospel in chapter 20, uh, verse 31, he told us why he wrote this Gospel account, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, that title of divinity, and by believing that we may have life in his name. That's the whole reason he's written this. That's the whole import of this book. We're still reading the introduction that, that John gives. He began by using the words of creation in the beginning. And he's identifying for us here that a new creation has commenced and is underway. He described Jesus as the word, the logos in the Greek, that stabilizing force of the universe and the revelation of God's intent for life. John's describing Jesus as the divine pattern for life and a light which brings illumination into the darkness of this fallen world. So as we observed last week, through Jesus, we learn what God is like. We gain eternal life. And we also gain the wisdom to know how to live that life in this present world that we're in. We also pointed out last week that there are themes that are going to appear 
in this book over and over again. Much of this we're discovering and learning here in, in chapter 1. Themes like light and life and glory. So if you are there in John chapter 1, we're going to pick up today where we left off, starting with verse 6. It says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. Now, John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. All right, now you may have noticed here on the screen that I put parentheses uh, around, or uh, a quotation where parentheses are around these uh, verses. And that's because most scholars believe that these verses uh, uh, were John inserting a little bit of explanation into his poem. So imagine it like uh, he's invited us to a Shakespearean play. And every little bit, he kind of leans over and explains what's happening here so that we don't lose the plot, so that we can kind of comprehend what's taking place. So he introduces us to John the Baptist, and he describes him as a witness to the light. The term witness, or some form of it, is going to appear uh, over 50 times in this gospel. So here we imagine that it's almost like the opening salvo of a courtroom case. And, 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 and this is the first witness that's called up to present the evidence for Jesus' identity. This is who John brings to the, the front. And I think it's important to note that the author makes a point to differentiate between the witness and the light that, that he's attesting to. So John was not the light. John, the author, makes a point of saying that. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So, you know, if you go to the movie theater and you buy your ticket at the front and then you you encounter another person there in the theater, right? You give your ticket to the person and they tear the stub and then they point to where they're supposed, you're supposed to go. It's the second theater there on the left, you know, and, 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 and you follow their directions. They're pointing the way. Now, if we were to... You know, if we were to fawn all over that person, just gush over them and just say, you are an amazing example of cinema brilliance, it it would come off as a little deranged, right? Because they're just there to point the way. That's that's how confused the notion of celebrity pastors is to me. It's a gross uh, misplacement of loyalty and affection. No, the author of this gospel wants to reinforce the primacy of Christ, that he is the true light. He is is the focus. Jesus alone provides the illumination that we need for life. And when we're talking about life, we're talking about life in its fullest eternal sense. Understand what we're saying there. John the Baptist, listen, he was super important, like like really important in this whole story, but as a witness. And John, the author, wants to be sure that we understand the limitations of that. The light doesn't come from him, but to him, and he announces it. He points towards it, as with you know every other human agency. The, the human agency is not the light, and that even includes ourselves, remember. See, and this has implications that run really deep and that run contrary to our present culture's assumptions about enlightenment. Our culture places an emphasis on self-realization, We hear it in phrases that are almost automatic responses all the time. Look inside yourself for the answers. Follow your own heart to be enlightened. But the biblical narrative consistently tells us that we're never going to know our true selves 
apart from God. If we start with just ourselves, if I start with just what I want, my will, my view of life, I am not going to end up with real life. And we see that played out from the choice made in the Garden of Eden to every other choice that was made from then on in the biblical narrative. When we focus only on ourselves, our lives become so closed in and so small. But when we start with God, all the possibilities and the vastness of His purposes are then part of the equation, are part of the makeup then of who we are. To know myself, if I start with myself, everything about me is limited and confined to my own experiences and my limited understanding even of those experiences. But if I start with God and His pattern, suddenly everything opens up in my life and existence takes on a whole new meaning because it's infused with His eternal insight and knowledge and understanding. So this is kind of like a first step in this. John's leading us along in this. He's leading us to conclusions that we've already read to you, but he's leading us along. Here's the first step. As the light comes into the darkness, we realize that we are not the light, that the true actualized identity is going to be found outside of ourselves and our self-absorption. In fact, there is no other human source for that light uh, that, that has been provided. The answers we're looking for are not inherently within us. It starts with Jesus and what he reveals about God. And that, that's the key. Okay, well, John picks up his poem uh, then in verse 10. He came into the world uh, that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But... To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. All right, in these verses, John's um, presenting the setup for the entire narrative that he's about to present. Jesus comes into the world. He's not recognized. He comes to his own people. And they reject him. And if you remember the structure of John's gospel that we put up last week, this is actually telling us what the whole plot is for chapters 2 through 12. It's the book of signs. He does all of these things and nobody recognizes him. In fact, they reject him in that. And I find it intriguing that he comes to his own people and, and that's talking about the nation of Israel and they're lumped together with the world in this rejection. So it tells us no one is exempt from this dilemma of being in the dark. No one got a pass in this. Everybody, Jews and Gentiles, people within the covenant, people outside of the covenant, everybody, everybody has that shadow of darkness. In John's vocabulary, the world, which in the Greek it's cosmos, but it's an important theological term. It appears 78 times in this writing alone. And the majority of those references to the world are, are decidedly negative as it's talked about. Now, we also need to understand he's not talking about the natural world uh, in that, uh, you know, the, the, the planet per se. He's not saying, you know, chipmunks and oak trees are evil or inherently or anything like that. He's talking about the systems and the institutions of humanity, human wisdom as it's arrayed over against God's wisdom. 
the world in John's account is not the created order of things. It's the order of things according to human wisdom that lives in rebellion to God's intended order. Which, to me, makes the statement that we'll hear Jesus say in John 3.16 all the more impactful. For God so loved the world. The world that actively rejects him. And, and, you know, that's not some endorsement of the world. It's a testament to the character and the love of God. Verses 12 and 13 then describe the glory that comes to those who will believe in him, despite what seems like loss and failure and rejection. And the result for those who believe is so important. It is a rebirth into God's family. So in Jesus, our identities are established as God's children. To all who believe and accept him, he gives the right to become children of God. That is an intriguing statement because it carries both a a, a passive and an active tense to it. A right is something that is afforded to you. It's, It's provided to you, granted to us. That's more of a passive kind of thing. But to become describes an active pursuit, what we set out to discover and embody. To believe and accept Jesus means we want him. I want you, Jesus, to be my guide, my leader, the one to whom I give my loyalty to. And then we set out to live from that reality. My guide, my light, my loyalty goes to him. I've been granted this right to come back into relationship with him. And now I set out to understand what that means to live that way. In wanting him to rule over us, in believing he is who he says he is, we're made aware then of our true selves, our real identities. And this is key. This is huge in John's introduction here. That we are children loved and wanted by God. That is who we are. Jesus reveals God to us as divine parent. A a parent who willed for us to be his children. This isn't just, see, sometimes I think we we kind of get it in our heads, you know, well, he's God. He's got to love us. You know, he's like, "Eh, I got to love these people. I'm God after all, after all. This is not indifference or accident. This is determined will. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. That's the heart of God that Jesus reveals. This isn't something we get by being born into the right family. It's not limited to a specific nationality or ethnicity. This is an identity that's not achieved through our efforts, through human passion or plan, as John described it, this familial identity comes through personally wanting and believing in Jesus. Jesus is the light which illumines who we truly are. It's like being in a dark, dark room and the light comes on and we see a mirror for the first time. We see who we really are. We are the wanted children of God. We are loved. In our society, we struggle with this concept of love a lot. 
for the most part, it's relegated to the, the shallowest, the basest form that we can dream up. That's romantic love. And we see it idealized in the movies and on TV shows. But other times love gets corrupted and abused. And oftentimes people find themselves in situations, maybe even a church where the words of love are used, but it's not represented in reality. In fact, sometimes it's the very opposite. It's abuse. Jesus comes into the world to turn on a light to let you know deep down where no one else can touch it. God loves you. He loves you. No matter what's happening in our lives, the job may be falling through, I'm still a child of God whom he loves. The relationship maybe breaking apart. Someone may have even actually said to us, I don't love you anymore. But through all of that pain, nevertheless, I am still a child of God whom he loves. Loneliness and depression may want to close in around you, but even if we fall in that hole at bedrock, I am a child of God whom he loves. That is our declaration of defiance to a world that wants to divine us otherwise, a world in rejection of God's order. My value is not subject to another's assessment of me. I am not just a statistic. I am not a consumer or or, or a marketing target. I am not just a cog in some red or blue machine. I am not just a random glob of cells. I am not alone in this world. I am not unloved. I am not unnoticed. In Jesus, I know who I am. We are the children of God whom he loves, whom he gave it all for. Our lives are brimming with purpose and meaning. My life is the story that he is telling. And there's a part for everyone in this story that's unfolding here. This is who we are if we want and believe the illumination found in Jesus. It's our true identity. Nothing can rob us of it. And again, listen, I could spend a few months just on those verses alone But I'm respectful of your time. (laughs) So we'll move on to what I consider to be the most important verses of the whole Bible. And I am trusting and believing that I am going to get through these in a calm and cool, collected manner. (laughs) Verse 14. No, it's not going to work. I can't. (laughs) I can do it. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of wrath and anger, of irritation. He was full of unveiling love and faithfulness to his promise. Go all the way back to Abraham when he spoke to him and he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your family, they'll all come to know me. Full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. 
John testified him when he, when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said someone is coming after me who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus, Messiah. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. And he has revealed God to us. Man, can you feel the weight of those words? It's powerful stuff. Now this is presented by John the author as important. The word didn't just appear to be human. The word became human, literally took on flesh in the Greek, sarks. Now that statement was scandalous for any Greek mind that followed Plato's view of the world. In that view, there's a separation uh, of the divine spirit and the mundane, those material things, the things of flesh. And that was a core belief. That's a core fundamental supposition by Plato. The material stuff and and the spiritual stuff are completely incompatible in ancient Greek thinking. But the second phrase was equally stunning for the Jewish mind. The word made his home among us and revealed his glory. The Greek verb for made his home is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the word of the tabernacle of God. In other words, Jesus is the location of God's manifest presence, just like it was in the tabernacle of Israel's wandering years in the Exodus, which also means that the glory of God, once restricted to the tabernacle and the temple, is now revealed in Jesus, the Messiah. To clarify that he's not trying to dismiss the tabernacle or its role in Israel's history, he reminds us in verse 15 of how John was a witness. This is one who John was testifying to. Remember, he's a witness. He's not the light. And he draws the same conclusion about the law of Moses. It was a pointer, a witness of what, or or rather who was coming. And in some ways, I, I think this is meant to take us back to Exodus 33, In Exodus 33, Moses is interceded on behalf of Israel. And at one point in that interchange with God, he says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God only partially answers that prayer. He he puts his hand over him and he passes by and he gets to see where God's glory was. But he doesn't actually get to see it. But here Jesus is described as revealing God's glory. The fulfillment of what it was Moses longed for has been provided to us through Jesus. John, the author, wasn't pitting Moses or the law over against Jesus, but explaining its role in God's scheme of things. The law could only reveal the depth of our broken state, how far we had fallen from God, whereas Jesus reveals the immediacy of God's love and his grace towards us. The word became human. Let's never get over that phrase. Let's not shrug that off or forget about it. The word became human. And that tells us that God isn't trying to communicate some vague philosophical concept. He wants to communicate about himself. Here's who I am. Here's what I intend. The word became human means that God 
that the God that is being revealed here isn't hidden and obscured so that only mystics or scholars are able to get in there and unlock its secrets. He lived among us, as us, in the mundanity of our everyday existence. He was touched and heard by anyone who was willing to hear and to touch him. What what if God had stayed in heaven? What if he just put up little signs around saying, man, you should be up here. It is awesome. This is so cool where I am. The reason you're suffering, you're over there. You're not where I am, but he didn't do that. Jesus is God entering into the pain and the mess, reaching into the realm of humanity. He takes our form in order to give a full and certain revelation of just who God is and what his intents are. If you've ever had a pet, anybody have a pet, a dog or anything? A dog especially. I had a dog named Shadow. And have you ever had to try to give medicine to your pet? It is a challenge, right? I mean, I, I remember Shadow, we do, you know, you have to give an oral medication, a pill. And you try to give that do- to a dog and you do all the tricks. We did, we did all of it just like we were supposed to. We put the pill down inside of a hot dog and we give him the hot dog and he's, ah, hot dog. And you look and there's you daintily spitting out this pill. He chewed all around it. Like, I would try to hand him a dog biscuit, and he would practically take my finger off with it. No discernment in that whatsoever. But you try to put a pill in there? Oh, my goodness, he's a delicate little being, and he's not going to get that. So, you know, finally, you got to resort to just, you got to do this. you got to be healthy. So I can remember one time I'm holding Shadow, and I'm prying open his mouth as best as I can. And, and Robbie's trying to shove the pill down his throat and rub his throat to make him swallow it and stuff, and... But, you know, he's a dog. And he didn't know what's going on. So obviously he's panicked. He's frightened. He's whimpering. And the whole time I'm trying to talk to him soothingly. I'm holding his jaw and I'm trying to talk and say, it's okay, buddy, it's okay. And I kept thinking at that time, man, if I could just communicate in a way that a dog could understand, I could just let him know we're not trying to hurt him. We're trying to help him. Jesus is God in human form experiencing what we experience on this broken earth, getting as close to us as he possibly can and expressing to us in ways that we can understand the very heart of God. I am not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. I love you. In Deuteronomy 30, 14, Moses said the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may obey it. And John, the author, is sort of playing on that here. The word is near you. He knows the heart of God. And it's full of unfailing love for you. The heart of God is right here. Right now. Right here. Right now. And it's expressed to you from these words. I love you. And so many of us in our lives' existence, we squirm, pull away, we run. We fear we'll lose some freedom somewhere along the way. Hear Jesus through this gospel. 
He's getting as close to you as he can. I'm not trying to hurt you. I love you. Come be with me. Come follow me. Find out what real life is really like. I'll show you the way. So let's believe that revelation. Let's see God through the illumination that Jesus provides us. Let's understand ourselves as children whom God loves. And let's draw close to the heart of God as we experience His love for us in Christ. Let's be people who can bear witness to the love of God that's found in Jesus. You've heard me say it many times before in the past. We're never going to be able to to love others and to do what these Gospels encourage us to do until we really experience and know His love for us. And so this is the challenge. Let's open our hearts to Him. I really believe God's doing something in the world right now. I believe He's drawing close to His church. We're seeing signs of it. This is our opportunity to open up our hearts and say, God, give me a fresh revelation of the power of your love because I'm telling you as an eyewitness to it, as one who experienced it firsthand, it radiates from his throne. It changes everything before it. You think a hurricane is powerful? Nothing is as powerful as the love of God made manifest through Jesus Christ. It's life-altering. It's life-changing. It will draw us back to our original place as image-bearers of God in this broken world. So as God is drawing close to His church, let's draw close to Him. Would you stand with me, please? Father, right now, as an act of our will, We open up our hearts to you. I pray for every person in this room. And I pray that you, the word, become human. Draw close to every person here. Father, you know us. You know our hurts. You know our failures. You know our struggles and our dilemmas. You know our doubts. You know our imaginations. You know our intellects. You know us. Everything about us. You're the one who knows us best, revealed as the one who loves us most. Father, let your love draw close to every person in this room. And as we open up our hearts to you, Father, for an awakening to the power of your love and your grace, I pray, Lord God, that you draw close, that you begin to quicken lives and hearts and minds. I pray that we don't leave here the same people that we walked in as. I pray, Father, for strength in our legs, for power in our arms, for the ability to stand against the tide that moves so drastically in opposition to your purposes. Help us, Father. Help us transcend that and the noise of this broken place to fall into your arms that are outstretched for us and to hear from you. Oh, my child, I have loved you so. Redefine us by that love, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.